you have your Bibles, if you would open to Acts chapter 4, and we are continuing our series, it may sound odd, in uh, the book of Genesis, but as we work through Genesis chapters 1 through 3, as I mentioned, a number of questions arise from those chapters, questions regarding God's sovereignty, questions regarding how God's sovereignty relates to human responsibility and evil, and so I thought it would be helpful for us over the next few weeks to explore those issues in depth, or as, as depth as we can. Uh, these really, uh, and, and really deserve an entire series of sermons, so we're going to try our best here, just a couple sermons, to work through those things. I'm breaking this sermon up into two parts in the interest of time, and today is part one. And now just to set some of the context, unfortunately I do have to take some time to tell you some of that, set some of the context. In Acts chapter 4, we understand that the day of Pentecost occurred, and when Pentecost occurred, of course, Jesus had risen from the grave, he ascended into heaven, the church was gathered together in the upper room, God poured out the Holy Spirit, and then Peter stood up, they began to speak in other tongues, declaring the, the, the mighty works of God, and then God added 3,000 people to the church that day. So that's Acts chapter 2. And then Acts chapter 3, we see Peter and John, they go to the temple, and this crippled man, crippled from birth, he's begging for money, and they look at him and they say, silver and gold we don't have, but we have in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Well, guess what? He rose up and walked and leapt for joy in the temple, and people were astounded because they knew who this man was, and Peter stands up and he starts preaching the gospel to all these people and talking about how Christ, whom they had crucified, is now risen from the grave, and it's creating quite a commotion, getting on the nerves, aggravating the religious leaders who come and they arrest Peter and John. And so there they are before the religious leaders, and they say, well, what you, what's going on here? So Peter takes the opportunity to share the gospel with them. This is about Jesus Christ, the one whom you crucified is now risen from the dead. And so they threatened them, told them not to preach anymore in that name, and Peter said, well, that's all we can do. Thank you very much, to paraphrase. And they, after many more threats, they let him go. And so now, Peter and John, they come now to their friends and that takes us here to our passage today, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. When they were released, that is, Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the, nation, the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and, his, and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed... 
the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your word that you have given to us, and we pray, Father, that you would illumine the text to us. Help us, Lord, to understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, we saw how God created all things as a display of and for God's glory. And he created man in his image. He creates man to be his representative on earth, essentially to spread God's kingdom over the face of the earth. And we saw there that God created all things and it was very good, but it didn't take very long for things to get very bad as Adam and Eve yielded to the lies and to the temptations of Satan and rebelled against their creator and their maker. But then, when all seemed lost, there's no hope. Genesis 3.15, God made what we call a covenant of grace. He gives the gospel. Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God here, as we discussed, promises an absolute certain promise to send a Savior who will defeat Satan and accomplish God's plan of redemption, ultimately, that was foreordained from the foundation of the world. He will accomplish this plan of redemption to save his people. But we recall when Adam and Eve in the garden, after they had sinned, they weren't seeking this. They weren't seeking God. Yet God here guarantees to bring salvation not only to them, but salvation, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says, to a great multitude that no one can number. But now here's the question. What if Adam and Eve said no to the promise? Moving on in redemptive history, what if Noah in his free will said, yeah, God, I know you want me to build this boat, but you know, I get kind of seasick, so I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. What if Moses appears before God in the burning bush and says, yeah, you know, thanks God, that all sounds good, but... You know, I really don't want to face Pharaoh and face death because I'm having a good time here. I live a quiet life. I really don't want to do that. You know, and after all, I mean, why? Because I heard a voice speaking from an unburning bush. You know, maybe I had too much wine with my Hebrew pasta. So, no, I don't know if I want to do that. What if they had done that? Or we can press it even further. What if? What if? No person ever, no person ever decided to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Let me ask it this way. Is it conceivable that Christ was sent into the world to die with the possibility that not one person would ever be saved? How, in other words... Can God in Genesis 3.15 make such a certain promise that people certainly will be saved? 
How can that be true? How can he make a promise like that? And the answer is because God is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth, and before he created anything, he decreed what would happen in heaven and on earth. Isaiah chapter 40 says it, 46 puts it this way. We quoted it earlier. God says, I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. And he says this, the context is, it's against and in light of the false gods of the nations. The triune God alone is able to say with exact precision what will happen before it happens. His eternal purpose, that which he decreed before time even began, will happen in the exact time, the exact place, the exact manner that he determined. And his purpose, not the purpose of men, not the purpose of angels, not the purpose of Satan, not the purpose of demons, will most certainly stand. It cannot not stand. It cannot not be accomplished. The point here, there's many more texts we could look at, but in the interest of time, the point here is this. The fall of man did not catch God by surprise. It was decreed by him before time even began. And Genesis 3.15 is the first revelation of the eternal plan of redemption conceived by God before time even began. And that raises the question, if God is sovereign and God has ordained all things that come to pass, as we quoted earlier from our confession, to include the very choices that we make, how can those choices be said to be meaningful in any meaningful way, and how can he hold us accountable for our choices? Now that I've let the toothpaste out of the tube and I can't put it back in, I'm going to have to deal with these things. Fortunately, the Bible has much to say about this. While our text doesn't give an explicit answer, it shows both God's Sovereignty over all things and human responsibility and far from making our choices irrelevant and prayer and gospel preaching meaningless, God's sovereignty actually makes those things possible and gives them meaning. And it's my task to try to present that to you the next couple of weeks, to show that to you. So we're going to break this into two parts. And the main idea is this, because God is sovereign over all things, we are responsible for our choices, and we must pray and boldly declare God's word. Today, we only have time to look at the first point. God is sovereign over all things. And we're going to look at three things related to that. First of all, God's sovereignty in creation. Secondly, God's sovereignty over the nations. And third, God's sovereignty in redemption. So, First point, God is sovereign over all things. In verses 23 through 24, Peter and John, they go to their friends. They tell them what happened, and you can imagine. 
They tell them all about the crippled man who was healed by Jesus and their, their, uh, their experience before the chief priests. You can imagine how excited they were. You can imagine how excited the people were. In verse 24, we see what that excitement results in. Verse 24, they lifted up their voices to God. In other words, they prayed. When it says they lifted up their voices and we see what the prayer is here, it's not that they all prayed the same things at the same time. Probably Peter was leading the prayer and they're just in in agreement with Peter, of one mind with Peter. And we're going to look at the significance of, of prayer and why that's important in terms of God's sovereignty. But today, we're really going to look at the substance of this prayer. Notice it starts out, he says, Sovereign Lord. Now, this is really just one word, Sovereign Lord. And the word means master and ruler, but in the context here, the idea of God's sovereignty comes into view. And so front and center in their mind is this attribute of God's sovereignty, his sovereign rule. But then that raises the question for us, what does it mean that God is sovereign? Well, to say that God is sovereign is to say that he rules, that he reigns. It is his complete control over and direction and governing of everything in heaven and on earth. I love what A.W. Pink says, and that's not a root beer, that was a... uh, (laughs) a theologian many years ago. A.W. Pink puts it this way, To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. Listen, God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases, that whatever takes place in time is but the outworking of that which he decreed in eternity. That's a mouthful. That's a lot for us to get our minds around, but that in essence is what we mean when we say God is sovereign. Pink says in another place when we say that God is sovereign, the sovereignty of God is the Godhood of God. It's what it means for God to be God. And so we see God's sovereignty come out in three specific ways in our text. First of all, in creation, then then with the nations, and in his plan of redemption. And so, God's sovereignty in creation. Sovereign Lord, notice he says, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In Genesis chapter 1, we recall that God created all things by the sheer power of who he is, by the power of his word. He created the trillions of stars and the galaxies and the planets and all things on earth. He created all, created all the plant life and land animals and, and insects. Yes, insects to include the stink bug. Why would God create the stink bug? That's a question I think I might ask him one day. And after he tells me to sit down and shut up, then I'll say, okay, I get it, God. All the sea creatures. He creates man in his image. In other words, everything from the tiniest microbe to the largest creature on earth to the vast galaxies in the heavens, everything God has created. And not only does he create them, but the scriptures teach He sustains and governs governs them by the word of his power. So this comes out. I love how uh, the Westminster Confession 
says here, chapter 5, section 1, God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free immutable counsel of his will. That's a mouthful. Let me sum it up for you. R.C. Sproul put it this way. There are no maverick molecules running around in the universe. Or let me put it to you another way. There are no autonomous atoms running around in the universe. God is in control of all things, all creatures and their actions, directing them according to the, to the immutable counsel, the unchangeable counsel of his holy, sovereign, and good will, and it's all redounding to the glory of his justice and his mercy and his grace. That's what creation's all about. Now, just a point here of application so we can come up for air for a little bit because this is a lot of heavy stuff for us to get our minds around. Just a point for us to think about. It's interesting that God calls attention here to creation first. This is what the, the prayer. Because in calling attention to creation, it calls attention to the infinite, almighty power of God. In other words, if God can and God did do this, then that means, obviously, he can do anything. And it means he has a plan. It means he's in control. And it means that you can trust him. You may not understand what's going on in the world. You may not know what's going to understand with different things in nature and, and what's going on with things in your life, but you know that you serve an all-powerful, almighty, sovereign God who, Paul says, works all things to the good to them who love them. And the ultimate good is our conformity to Christ. And so it's good for us because we get so focused in on the little bubble of our world and the things here. And what we need to do is just stop sometimes and reflect upon, observe God's creation, observe the things that he has made, reflect upon those things. Remember Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Day by day they pour forth speech. I remember we went to the shore it was a long time ago, like last week, I think it was. <laughs> I spent three days there, and, and I love the shores. I go out there really early, and I'm walking the shoreline, and I'm looking at the, the ocean. I'm seeing the vast ocean and looking at the waves and, and then seeing the sun come up. Then I stop, and I'm praying to the Lord, and I'm exalting the Lord, this, this, this God who's created all things for the sheer power of who he is. And I'm standing in awe of this creation, standing in awe of how, of how the oceans, how vast it is and how the waves come in, and then they only come so far because God has set their limits. I stand in awe as I saw the sun rise up and, and give its light to the earth and how the moon is controlling the tides. And I'm praising God. The point is, dear friends, we need to stop and reflect. Get your minds don't have tunnel vision. Come out. Look at his creation. Enjoy his creation. Let it be an opportunity for you to praise him. This is our Father's world. And he's an awesome and mighty creator.
and you can trust him. Next we see in verses 25 to 28, God's sovereignty over the nations. I have to get used to this. Verses 25 through 26, actually verses 25 through 20, but we're going to hear verse 25, he says, the sovereign Lord who, through the mouth of the father David, your, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. Here they're quoting, as Timothy made mention of, Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is described as a royal psalm because it speaks of how God made David his king, his anointed king, and how God's kingdom would last forever, how there would always be somebody to sit on the throne of David, one of David's offspring would, and that kingdom would never come to an end. And of course, that offspring is Christ. And we see here, it says that the nations and the people, they plot, they plan, they devise their strategies against God and his king. But... Psalm 2 goes on to say that he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now, if you're like me, you look at the word derision, you're like, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked, because I asked too. I love what this says. Derision is more than just making fun of someone. It's mocking someone so forcefully and with such venom that you discredit the person completely. You know, God is not impressed with us. God is not afraid of us. God is not sitting up in heaven going, oh my goodness, what's going to happen if people don't, don't submit to my will? What am I going to do? I can't accomplish my plan. What am I going to do because the nations are, are raging against me? Uh, quick, quick, let's get together. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and angels, we've got to come up with a new plan because this one isn't going to work. Because mighty man says no. And God says, I'm laughing because I'm the mighty God. You're just dust in the wind, to quote a song. He laughs, holds them in derision. And you know who understood this? Just as a point of illustration here, King Nebuchadnezzar. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar? The mighty king of Babylon, he's standing up and he's looking over his kingdom and he's, he's looking, look at, look at all that I have made in my wisdom and in my power. And as the words are coming out of his mouth, God says, Boop. <laughs> you're done, sit down, shut up. Oh, and by the way, you're going to worm around like an animal for a little while. <laughs> and that's what happens. He's made to eat uh, grass like an ox. He's all wet and he's got long hair and he's got these long fingernails. He's a mess. He's insane. And then he finally, God in his grace, brings him to his senses. senses. Look what this pagan king, this God-hater, says. His dominion, <laughs> not mine, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. That's what I was before this God. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's the God that we serve. 
Now, just a point of application here for us. All that sounds well and good. And we can say yay and amen to all that. But then we see things going on in the world. We see what's going on in Afghanistan and the utter incompetence that resulted in that situation. That's resulted now in the deaths of many people. It's probably going to result in the deaths of many more people. We see this wicked group called the Taliban and what they're going to start doing to Christians. And we see, not just them, we see oppressive regimes all around the world. We see regimes like China and North Korea and what they're doing to just try to stamp out the church and stand opposed to God. And we can become discouraged. We can become hopeless. But we need to remember, as Isaiah 40 says, that the nations are like dust on the scale. They are it says, less than nothing before him. We need to remember Psalm 75, where it says, he raises one up and brings another down for his purpose and his glory. And so, the question is, where is the Assyrian Empire? Where is the Babylonian Empire? Where is the Greek Empire? Where is the Roman Empire? They have all come and they have all gone, gone and brought down into the dust. The one constant that remains is Christ and his kingdom. And it will always remain. It will always last. It is eternal. It is forever. When we think about these empires, we go, yeah, they came down. They crumbled. Then we think about America, and we think, oh, that'll never happen to us. Well, we're not exempt, are we? Our nation, founded upon Christian values, with the words, listen, in God we trust, emblazoned across our currency, have mocked God openly without fear. We have slaughtered over 60 million innocent human beings. There's rampant corruption in every institution from the White House to the church house. And we have a love affair with consumerism, materialism, sexual sin, not just homosexuality, but heterosexual sin. And by the way, the, most, the biggest problem in the church isn't homosexual, homosexuality, homosexual sin, but heterosexual sin. And self. We are in love with self. What's our hope? Because the nation's falling apart, you do understand. You see it falling apart before your eyes. What's our hope? Well, I'll tell you what our hope isn't. It's not some politician in the White House or in the Senate or in Congress. It's not some Republican or Democrat or somebody who says, well, I'm an independent, I'm an outsider. It's not somebody who says, I'm going to clean the swamp. Yeah, good luck with that. Our only hope is in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we have to keep our eyes fixed, not on politicians or on politics, but on Christ and his kingdom, and pray 
Pray against the wickedness of the nations. Pray for God's people. Pray for the gospel and God's kingdom to advance. That's what we must do. We must pray to the Lord of the nations. Third, God's sovereignty in redemption. What does Psalm 2, thank you. What does Psalm 2, written 1,000 years before Jesus was even born, have to do with Jesus? Everything. Everything is good for has to do with Jesus, right? Verse 27 quotes, after quoting Psalm 2, verse 27 gives us the interpretation, the, the God-breathed commentary on Psalm 2. For, here's Psalm 2, now, they rose up against God's anointed. For, here, let me interpret this for you. This is what this means now. Truly in this city that is Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, Jesus is a Davidic king who was to come, which Psalm 2 also calls, also says that God calls God's begotten son, that the nations must serve lest they, lest they be consumed by God's wrath. And the mention here of Herod and Pilate clearly bring into view the crucifixion of Jesus. They came against the Lord's anointed. And while they and the devil thought that they had the perfect plan to destroy Jesus, God's anointed king, the reality is that even Reality is that every single thought that they had, every choice that they made, every action that they took, took place according to whatever the hand of God and his plan predestined, that is, determined beforehand to take place. And God used the very thing that they thought he would never use, the death of of the cross. Paul said that he died even the death of the cross. God uses the most unlikely of things to accomplish his plan of redemption, and it's there at the cross where Satan's head would be crushed. When, Satan, when Jesus is hanging on the cross naked and humiliated, I'm sure Satan and the minions and demons and all his little minions were having a great big party. Little did they realize that their head was being crushed in the process. And so God here, the, the idea is that God is not passive. He's active. It's not that God looked into a crystal ball and said, oh, good, now I know what's going to happen on planet Earth. I kind of like that planet. That's going to turn out good for me. I, I think we'll go with that. No, he knows it's going to happen because he decreed what happens. God didn't foresee a plan. He conceived the plan and initiated the plan and accomplished his plan. God wrote the script and is a director and the main character of the screenplay. And he writes into the screenplay our choices and actions through which he will accomplish his purposes. And so God is actively accomplishing his plan by his hand. I love what Psalm 33 says. The Lord foils the plans of the nations he thwarts the purposes of the peoples, but the plans of the Lord stand firm. How long? Forever. 
And so everything, dear ones, everything, from the first act of creation to the fall of man into sin to all of the people who have ever lived and ever will live and all the choices that they ever have made and ever will make to all the nations and all the empires that have ever existed to all of the prophecies in the Old Testament to the first coming of Christ to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the grave for our salvation all the way to the second coming of Christ when he comes back to create a new heavens and a new earth all of it is the outworking of God's sovereign decree and perfect plan. A plan, dear ones, that is not subject to the fickle, feeble will of man, but to the sovereign power and the sovereign grace of a sovereign God who has decreed to save perfectly and to the uttermost a multitude of hell-deserving sinners through the indestructible blood of Jesus Christ, a Savior who doesn't just try to save his sheep, but actually saves them without fail by his almighty resurrection power. And that's why, if you're a believer, that's why you're sitting in this room today, because of the sovereign power, not of your free will, but of God's resurrection power that gave you the will to choose Christ. And so we've seen God's sovereignty is absolute. There are no maverick molecules. There are no autonomous atoms. I love what Paul says in Ephesians 1. He says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. What is the all things that he works according to the counsel of his will? John Piper puts it this way. All things includes the fall of sparrows, the rolling of the dice, the slaughter of his people, the decisions of kings, the failing of sight, the sickness of children, the loss of gain and gain of money, the suffering of saints, the completion of travel plans, the persecution of Christians, the repentance of souls, the gift of faith, the pursuit of holiness, the growth of believers, the giving of life and the taking in death and the crucifixion of his son from the smallest thing to the greatest thing, good and evil, happy, sad, pagan, Christian, pain, pleasure. God governs them all for his wise and just and good purposes. And that takes us to the second point. Namely, God and his sovereignty holds us responsible for our choices. How? Well, you'll have to come back next week because we're out of time. For now, just know that the text makes it clear that our choices matter. They matter. They matter so much to God that he sent Christ to die on the cross for all of our sinful words, all of our sinful thoughts, all of our sinful choices, and all of our sinful actions. More on that next week. If you're here today, and if you're watching by live stream and you haven't received Christ as Lord and Savior, I encourage you to act on the words that the Apostle Peter preached to the people in the temple that day when that crippled man was healed. Here's what he says to them. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do that right now. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised the very next second. Receive Christ. Turn to him today. And for believers, let us not forget that we serve a sovereign God. 
Let that comfort you. Let it be a comfort to your soul. Let it be a comfort that God is God. He's in control. Not the angels, not the devil, not the forces of nature, not the free will of man, but God is in control. And listen, nothing can thwart his purposes. Nothing. So let us as believers do like it does in the text here. Rejoice. Rejoice in that fact. Rejoice that you serve a sovereign God. Give praise to the God who has decreed all things to come to pass, is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And let us pray, just like they did here. Pray. Pray for the lost. Pray against the wicked nations. Pray for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for the faith. And pray for boldness to declare the praises of him who called you and me out of darkness and into the marvelous light of his Son. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. Oh, Lord, help us to take hold of these truths. Be with us now, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.